Well, Father, we stand at the most pivotal part of this service, time when we quiet our hearts, we open our ears, we sit before you in quiet expectation to speak to us. Lord, there's not a person under the sound of my voice this morning that in the honesty of the moment would not speak to you in the quiet desperation of their heart. Lord, we are a needy people. Our country is a mess. Our communities continue to spiral in sin. Our homes are not where they should be. Our lives are not what you would have them be. Lord, we come to you this morning begging you to do your work in and through your word this morning. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of comfort and encouragement. And so we ask, Father, to speak to us this morning. We ask that you would change our hearts this morning. That they would desire that we would pant after you, O Lord, like the deer desires the water. Help us, Father, we pray, for it's you we desperately need. And it's, your, and it's in your word that we find you yet again this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Open your copy of God's word to... Philippians chapter 3, we will spend our time there this morning in what I believe is a wonderful, wonderful letter. You no doubt, I know already, many of you enjoy the book of Philippians, have been encouraged by it, and I pray this morning we'll, that reality will happen yet again. I would like to read the whole chapter. It's only 20, I think 21 verses. And um, it's such a pivotal chapter in this book. I don't want to miss anything. And I don't want you to miss the flow of it. So I would just like to read the chapter in its entirety. So we're going to read Philippians 3. You follow along as I read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. What a glorious passage of scripture. I want you to know I prayed very specifically about this sermon, what the Lord would have me speak to you dear folk this morning. I meditated a lot, prayed a lot, read a lot of scripture, seeking what would be the right passage for this day. I landed on this passage because I thought if I had one sermon to preach to these people, this was the last time I would set foot in that pulpit, what would I want them to hear? What encouragement would I want them to have? What exhortation would I desire to give to them? And Philippians 3 is where I landed. Now, don't be scared. We are not going to look at every verse in chapter 3 this morning, though I would love to do that. I really am going to settle on one verse. We are going to focus our time this morning on Philippians 3, verse 12. We're going to peek at verse 13 and 14 as well, but only because I think in 13 and 14, Paul further illustrates elucidates, articulates, declares what he's really saying in verse 12. As I thought about the introduction to this sermon this morning, I thought of a lot of things. I said, I could talk about New Year's resolutions. 
We stand at the doorway of another year, don't we? And I could talk all about the resolutions that we'll wrestle with. Those of us that want to lose weight. Those of us that want more time. Those of us that want more money. Those of us that want whatever it is. And all the different things that we'll do to try to gain those desires. But I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you guys one question. I believe it's probably one of the most important questions in life to answer. It is a question that I was confronted with as I dealt with this text in my preparation. It is a question that Paul will answer for us oh so clearly as it pertains to his own life. But I want to ask you this morning, what are you pursuing in your life? What is the pursuit of your life? What is the goal, the ambition, the direction, the desire, the passion of your life? Where are you going? And who are you living for? What are you pursuing? You know, this whole idea of New Year's resolutions ultimately comes down to that reality of a pursuit of something. People desiring to to better organize their time, their lives, their finances in the pursuit of something else. And most of the time, those things are good. And they help us. But they pale in comparison to the ultimate pursuit that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. You see, Paul had one pursuit. He had one passion. He had one direction. He had one ambition. He had one ultimate goal in his life. And it is this, in one word, Christ. Paul desired to know Christ, to be like Christ, to, as you'll see in a minute, arrest and embrace Christ more than anything else in his entire life. Paul spent his entire life after salvation with one, in one direction, pursuing Christ-likeness. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Pursuing Christ-likeness. That's what this chapter is essentially about. This holy pursuit of Christ-likeness. What do I mean, Christ-likeness? The word pretty much defines itself. Being like Christ. Becoming more like Christ. So that your life and Christ's, Christ's life look alike. Dear loved ones, I'll tell you this morning, with the authority of God's word, that Christ-likeness in every way is the definition of what Christianity is all about. That is the journey of the Christian is to become like Christ. This is what it's about. And hopefully by the end of our time together in this text, you will see that it is not only the greatest pursuit of the Christian's life, it is the ultimate purpose of God for every believer. Paul understood that. Paul embraced that. And Paul, unlike any person I've ever known and even seen in the text 
in the holy text of Scripture demonstrates what that looks like for us in a way that should inspire us, convict us, and equip us so that we then in turn can, as he said just a few minutes ago in this text, imitate him, be like him in our pursuit of Christ. So this morning I essentially just want to consider three aspects of Paul's pursuit of Christ-likeness. Though there are many others that I could pull from this text, we could wring this text clean if I had time and we could see others. I just want to focus on three to keep our time very specific. I want us to really think about three things, three facets, three aspects of Paul's pursuit of Christ-likeness. And it is this. First, I want us to consider Paul's perspective of his Christ-likeness. Paul's perspective. Then I want us to think about Paul's passion for Christ-likeness. And then I want us to stop and consider what I think is the most important facet, and that is Paul's provocation. What provoked Paul to pursue Christ-likeness? Now, I'm, I speak to children all the time, okay? So forgive me if I break into some illustration that might be childlike, or if my verbiage tends to be a little pedestrian, a little low on the totem pole of linguistics. Okay? Forgive me. But I strive as a preacher of God's Word to be really, really clear. Okay? Probably too much so at times. So I want to be really clear where we're going this morning because I don't want you to lose this. Again, if I'm going to stand before you as the last sermon, I, want, I don't want you to miss anything. Okay? So essentially what I'm going to do this morning with this text, with essentially one verse, we're going to answer three very important questions. Okay, And here's the question. Paul's perspective, as we look at this, is going to tell us what Paul thinks about his own pursuit of Christ-likeness. Okay? We're going to answer that question. We're going, to, we're going to see Paul declare for us, he's going to tell us, he's going to answer the question, you want to know what I think about my own pursuit of Christ-likeness? I'm going to tell you. So we're going to answer the question, what does Paul think about his own pursuit? Then we're going to turn and look at Paul's passion, and we're going to answer another question, a very important question. How does Paul pursue Christ-likeness? He's going to tell us. Now, I don't know about you, but that helps me a lot. Not only do I want somebody to show me, hey, they're, they're out ahead of me, I want them to slow down and say, hey, how are you doing? Paul's going to do that for us. And then thirdly, I think it's the most important part. Paul is going to answer the question, the most important question. Why does he pursue Christ-likeness? Okay? So hopefully you should have a really clear understanding of where we're going. No hidden agendas here. All right? Okay, let's look at this verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Let's jump in. We're going to do what I hate to do. We're going to parachute into the middle of a book, into the middle of a letter, to the middle of a text. But I'll give you a little background here in a minute that hopefully will help. But looking at verse 12, this is what he says. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, as you think about that verse, let me give you just a little bit of history behind this letter so that we're all on the same page. 
The church in Philippi was started by the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey. Would have been around the year 50 AD. It was the first church that Paul started in Europe. Philippi would have been located in Macedonia. It's northeast of Greece. If you know where Greece is on the map, just go north of that to the east. And that's right about where Philippi is. You can read about this later on today, Lord willing, in Acts 16. The chapter of Acts 16 will give you the history of Paul essentially starting this church. And you'll read about the conversion of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And you'll read about that most amazing story of of Paul and Silas in jail. That is all part and parcel of Paul starting the church in Philippi. He writes this letter, which does have a major theme of joy through it. You've probably heard that before. But he writes it because of three main reasons. One is suffering. Paul was suffering by his imprisonment because he writes this letter from Rome in the year of about 61 around about 61 A.D., during his first imprisonment. So he's in chains while he writes this letter. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. He wants to encourage them that though he is suffering, he is not quitting. And he wants to thank them for their support of his ministry. But something had happened at the Church of Philippi. There was disunity in the church. Disunity among the leadership. Disunity among the people. And he wanted to stop that. So he writes this letter to exhort them about their disunity. They were being persecuted. They were suffering. He writes this letter to encourage them to persevere in the midst of their suffering. But most specifically in our chapter, he's writing to them because they're dealing with some false teaching that's trying to come into their church. There are people attacking his teaching. There are people talking about a form of perfectionism, a form of godliness without Christ. And Paul wants to decimate that. Hence he writes Philippians chapter 3. That's why in the beginning of chapter 3 we read his very um, poignant watch out, beware, look out. He says it three times. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's wanting to warn these people about these opponents who are seeking to attack Not simply Paul, but this church. To do that, Paul does something that I am so thankful for. I don't know if you realize this, but Philippians chapter 3 is the greatest personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. He lays it out. He he fills in the, the, the blank spaces that are left in the book of Acts. When you read Paul's testimony in Acts, it's great, but there's a lot of blank spaces left out. Paul fills those in in Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul's personal testimony. And I, and I know if you're like me, you love to listen to people's testimonies. You love to hear how, how the Lord has changed their life. You love to hear about how he has moved them from here to there. That's what Philippians 3 is in, in every way. Paul is going to say, listen, I'm going to show you why I'm not like those guys who are talking about becoming perfect without Christ. I'm going to show you how I don't believe that. And I'm going to show you by telling you my testimony. That's essentially what he does in Philippians 3. Okay? Now, the beginning of Philippians 3, he talks about the evildoers. He warns them about them. He talks about his life before Christ. He moves on from his pre-conversion years of how he sought to be righteous outside of Christ by obeying the law. And then in chapter 7, he moves to his conversion. How the Lord saved him 
Acts chapter 8 and 9. From 7 down to verse 11, he, it is a glorious passage talking about all that he has now in Christ and how he desires, because of his salvation, to know Christ more. But we get to verse 12, and he makes a statement. He makes a statement that flows out of verses 10 and 11. And he wants to be really clear to these people. Listen, I desire, he says in verse 10, I desire to know Christ more than anything. He says, I want to know him in his death, in his resurrection, in his life. I want to know him. But then we get to verse 12, our verse for today. And he says this. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He's going to repeat this again in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says the same thing, but even with more emphasis. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In the Greek, this jumps off the text because it's very emphatic. He says, I myself am saying this. He said, I myself want you to know, brothers and sisters. He's reaching out to them. I have not obtained this. I am not there yet. I am not perfect. Listen. The first thing we see about Paul's perspective about Christ's likeness is that Paul understood that his pursuit of Christ's likeness was incomplete. He was not finished. He was not done. Now, I don't know about you. You may just look at that and think, okay, yeah, I get that. But I want you to be encouraged this morning. Consider that I believe that there was no better believer, stronger believer than the Apostle Paul. He had more revelation of who Christ was. He wrote more scripture than anybody, 13 letters in the book of the New Testament, because he had so much revelation. Do you remember his vision where he went into the third heaven and saw things he couldn't even talk about? I mean, you think about him. As an unbeliever, he knew the law so well. He knew the Old Testament so well, he had it memorized. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. And then when God saved him, he had such an intimate relationship with Christ that none can compare with it. And yet this guy says, 30 years, 30 years after he's converted, is about the time he writes this letter. And he says, I'm not done. I'm not finished. My pursuit for Christ's likeness is incomplete. He is totally decimating the argument of the evildoers who are saying, you can be perfect. You can have Christ's likeness. You can, you can have perfection if you just embrace Judaism along with Christianity. Paul's saying, no, you can't. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the spitting image of this. You cannot. I am not, I am not done in my pursuit of Christ's likeness. Listen, be encouraged in your walk. I know. Though you may think so, your pursuit is not done. For those of you who are here that are believers, you may think you're okay. You may think you're almost there. You're not. And the Apostle Paul stands as a prime example to us. Here's the man that was, as far as I'm considered, closest to Christ 30 years after his conversion, and he's saying, I'm not done. But listen to me, loved ones. He didn't stop. He didn't quit. He was not discouraged. He was dissatisfied. 
by his pursuit of Christ-likeness. He was not where he wanted to be, right? But he was not discouraged. What did his dissatisfaction with his spiritual growth to Christ-likeness do for him? It propelled him further. It didn't hinder him. It didn't stop him. It drove him further to become more like Christ. Paul's perspective about his Christ-likeness is one, it's incomplete. I have not already obtained this. Something else. Paul's perspective about his Christ-likeness was that it demanded personal responsibility. There is this reality, I think, that still permeates the church. This thought that all I have to do is come to a pew to a chair on a Sunday morning and sit and listen to a sermon or just turn on the radio and listen to some Christian music or, or even just open my Bible and sit there and I'll become like Christ by osmosis. It was, it was alive and well in that day. There was this idea that, hey, I'm saved and I, I'm never going to be like Christ because I have this sinful nature that I deal with and so I'm just going to eat, drink and be married. And eventually I'll get to heaven. I've got my ticket. We're good to go. I've got fire insurance. We're going we're gonna to be all right. Nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing. And what you see in this text right here, Paul is giving us his perspective. Listen, my Christ-likeness is incomplete, but also my Christ-likeness, my pursuit of Christ-likeness, demands my personal responsibility. It demands that I do something. In three verses, he uses the first person pronoun I six times. Look at it. He says, I have not obtained this, but I press on. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Do you see it? Paul was taking responsibility for this pursuit of Christ's likeness upon himself. His perspective, I'm not, I'm not done, I'm, it's not complete. But I also understand that I've got to do something, which means I can't quit. I'm going to keep going. Listen, there is a huge difference, a huge difference between thinking about Christ-likeness and striving for Christ-likeness. You know, you can have that New Year's resolution of wanting to lose weight. And you can sit there and think about it all day long. I know, because I do it a lot. And you can think about it, and I'm going to cut this out and that out, and you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Yep, this is the year. Break out the Speedo. This this is it. (laughs) You know what? That Speedo will be in the closet unless you get on the treadmill. Now, that's a stupid illustration, right? But you understand. I want to be like Christ. I desire to know Him. Lord, I want to know You more. Oh, to know You more. Look, at, look, at, look, at, look over in chapter 1. Look at what Paul says. Because I want to show you one more thing about his perspective. Look at verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look at verse 23. I am hard pressed between two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. 
You think he didn't have a desire to know Christ? And then you go over and you read Philippians 3, and he says, I've counted everything lost so that I may know Christ. Listen, the third thing we see about Paul's perspective is this. Not only was his pursuit for Christ-likeness incomplete, not only did he declare emphatically that his pursuit for Christ-likeness would take his personal responsibility, but he also shows us that desire is not enough. See, he had the desire. Chapter 1, chapter 3. He desired to know Christ. But there is a huge chasm between desire and doing. Doesn't James chapter 1 declare that to us? Listen, be not only hearers of the word, but what? Doers also. Listen, you can sit and think all you want about becoming like Christ. You can have the greatest thoughts and the greatest desires. But until you take God's word and pick it up and start reading it and start studying it and start memorizing it, And start doing what it says. That goal, that ambition, will never be met. We see in the beginning of chapter 3, in the middle there, Paul's desire. What we see starting at verse 12 is Paul's doing. See, he had the desire. I want to depart and be with Christ. I love that. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Nothing else matters. Okay, what are you going to do about it, Paul? Look at what he says. First of all, I'm going to have the right perspective. I recognize I'm not there yet, so I'm not going to stop. It's incomplete. It demands my personal responsibility, and it demands more than the desire. So now I'm going to move forward. So you see Paul's perspective. What does he think about his Christ-likeness? There it is. We move on. Not only does Paul show us very vividly what he thinks about his Christ-likeness, by declaring to us his perspective, but he also shows us his passion for Christ-likeness, his passion. He moves from desire, from passion, to really methods. We're going to answer this question, method. How, How do you now take your desire and your passion, Paul, and put it into practice? What does that look like? First of all, I want you to notice that Paul's passion is seen in his determination. Determination. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Now look at the middle clause. But I press on to make it my own. I press on. That word is so rich with meaning. It means to move decisively and rapidly toward an object with all energy. He uses the same exact word back up at verse 6. Look up in your Bible to verse 6 in chapter 3. And it's the same word where it says, as in the ESV, it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In the Greek, the same word for persecutor is the same word right here for press on. So Paul is saying, listen, with the same zeal that I persecuted the church in the beginning, and you go back later on today, it'll do your heart well. You go back and you read Acts 8, and you read Acts 9. And you see in the beginning of Acts 9, those first two verses, where it starts out, and Paul breathing out murderous threats. Basically, what that means in the original language was, the air that Paul breathed was wickedness. He was breathing murder. 
Every breath he took was this idea of wanting to kill these Christians. That was the kind of zeal. That was the kind of determination he had to stamp out the name of Christ. He hated Christ. And now he says, with the same zeal that I once did that, now I turn in a pursuit for Christ's likeness. I have the same determination. It's not just desire for Paul. Listen, Paul was not distracted by his suffering. You read Philippians 1 later on today, you'll see he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for the gospel. He was in chains. Not only was he in chains, but he was being mocked. And there were even preachers taking advantage of Paul while he's in prison. And you know what? It didn't distract him. You, you don't hear him having a pity party. What do you hear him talking about? I want to know Christ more as he lifts up his chains. Not distracted by his suffering. Not dismayed by his sacrifice. In Philippians 3.8, what does he say? I've counted everything lost. He says, I've given it all up. I don't know about you, but I am tired in my own life. It sickens me when I think in my own heart, in the quietness of my own heart, when I play over all the things I've sacrificed for God. I hate that. Listen, you don't see Paul ever say that. What does he say? He says, I've given it all up and I'll give everything else because nothing compares to it. Nothing. He was not distracted by his suffering. He was not dismayed by his sacrifice. He gave it all up and he would give even more. He even says, I'll give my very life to know Christ. No, he was not distracted, not dismayed. And loved ones, I want to repeat this again. He was not discouraged by his shortcomings. I know what it's like to be discouraged by falling short. You don't see that here. You don't see him. Listen, he says, I have not obtained. And then he says, I can't obtain, so I'm just going to forget this. I'm going to give it all up. This is a joke. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I have not obtained. I am not where I should be. But I'm looking out there, and that's where I want to be, and that's where I'm going. He was not discouraged. He was a determined man. You see his passion and his determination. You also see his passion, I love this, in his discipline. In his discipline. Look at what he says. You see this in verse 13. As he just, again, further elucidates, further illustrates, further articulates what he means by, but I press on to make it my own. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here it is. But one thing I do. One thing. One thing. I love this. In the Greek, the I do is not there. It's implied. So translators have put it there. In the Greek, it just says one thing. It's emphatic. Paul's making a point. It's just like, one thing. That's it. It's all that matters. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the only thing my life is about. One thing. I pursue one thing. I'm a disciplined man. I pursue one thing. Paul doesn't say, I pursue 20 things. I pursue 12 things, 5 things, 3 things. No, one thing. I want to know Christ. His life is disciplined. Disciplined. Listen, many a man, many a man has been strangled under the weight of mediocrity. Not because he lacks desire, but because he lacks discipline. Many a person, 
wells up a lot of emotion and heart, desire to know Christ. But because their life is undisciplined, because they're all over the place, and they're involved in so many things, rather than this one thing, they miss the mark. They miss the goal. And they spend their life spinning their wheels, running around, trying to do a lot of things, rather than really, in all honesty, doing one thing. Apostle Paul, listen, he did a lot. Planning churches, traveling, missionary, I mean, who can compare to him? But here's the, here's the secret. Everything he did, all of that, was ultimately with the mindset of this one thing. He did all of that so that he could gain Christ. Not to be saved? No, we're going to talk about that in a minute. No. Not as a requirement for salvation, but as a result of salvation. We're going to look at that in a second. But see, he was a disciplined man. A disciplined man. You see his passion and his determination. You see it in his discipline. Look at what he says. He makes this really clear. He says, I forget those things that are behind. Here you go. What do you mean by discipline? I forget those things that are behind. What is he talking about here? Well, I mean, generally he's talking about all those things. He's talking about the things before salvation and the things after. Generally speaking, yes. But, specifically in context... He's actually talking about everything that he's done and attained to since salvation. All of his achievements, all of his accolades, all of his awards, he forgets them. He says, I put them behind me. I don't look back at them. He's talking about the good things. You know what? Whether we will admit it or not, in the quietness of your heart, my heart, and I think all of our hearts, there is a sense in which we kick it in neutral, don't we? When we start to get busy with pursuing Christ's likeness. Wow, I memorized the book of chapter 12 of Romans. Good to go. I'm set for a while. Put the Bible up, watch the game. And you just, you're good to go. You don't see that with Paul. Memorize the book of chapter 12 of Romans, it's behind him. I'm going on to 13. I'm going on to 14. He doesn't stop. You see? Oh, I've started this church in Macedonia. And I've started this church in Corinth. And I've done this. And I've done that. He does, just keeps on going. Doesn't stop. It's behind him. It's behind him. Not only does he forget those things that are behind him, but he strains forward to those things that are ahead. He keeps looking at the goal. He strains. That word means to exert yourself with all effort. It's the picture of a runner. That's the illustration he's using here of a runner who's in a race and he's looking with all his might to the goal, the goal of Christ-likeness, and he won't take his eyes off the goal. And he's straining with every ounce of his body and he's leaning forward. He's given it all. That's what he means when he says, I strain forward. The runner, if you know anything about running, a runner never looks behind him. The minute a runner looks behind him and takes his eyes off the finish line, somebody else will pass him. See, that's, what, that's the illustration he's using here. He says, I'm not going to take my eyes off the goal. I'm not going to be distracted by what's going on around me. Paul was a disciplined man. You see Paul's perspective. You see Paul's passion. He answers for us there how he runs, how he pursues Christ. And lastly, I want us to consider the end of verse 12. Really, what I believe is so important. I don't want you to miss this. What provoked Paul to pursue Christ's likeness? Look at the end of verse 12. 
Paul says, because Christ has made me his own. Let me read the whole verse again so you don't miss it. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Loved ones, Paul was provoked by two things. Two things. Okay? I don't want you to miss this. He was provoked, first of all, by the sovereign grace of God. This one clause I could preach on for the next hour. That's how much is here. And he says, the end of verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is he talking about? What is he talking about here? You go back and you read Acts 8 and 9. That's what he's thinking of. That's actually what he, I believe he's thinking about in Philippians 3. I believe he's, he's reminiscing on that day. And right here when he talks about Christ Jesus has made me his own. That word in the Greek actually means arrest. It means to siege. It means to take one captive. And that's what he's saying in the text. He says, Christ has taken me captive and I now want to take Christ captive. Christ took him captive on that road to Damascus. That day he was headed to persecute the church. And he's moving this way. And God in his sovereign grace reaches down, picks Paul up and says, turns him around and now he's going this way. Instead of to persecute the church, now he's going to go start churches. See, he never got over that. That provoked him. Because Jesus did this for me, I will now do this to gain him. That's what it is. See, again, it's not, the pursuit of Christ's likeness is not a requirement of salvation. It's a result. It's a ramification. It's the reality of what Christ has done. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, because Christ has made me his own, Paul was provoked. One more thing. Paul was not only provoked by God's sovereign grace, Paul was provoked by God's ultimate goal for his life. I don't want you to miss this. The ultimate goal for Paul's life is the same goal that God has for your life as a believer. Don't miss what I'm about ready to say. If you haven't heard anything this morning, I don't want you to miss this. Okay? Because here is my summation of this text and this passage right here. Okay? Here it is. I'm going to give it to you in like one sentence. Okay? Then you can go home and see what the Lord does with it. All right? Here it is. God's purpose for Paul becomes Paul's pursuit in life. God's purpose for Paul was that he would become like Christ. Romans 8, 29. That is the purpose that God has for every believer. He saved you and I, those of you who are believers, you were saved for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would become like Christ. That's it. That's it. Right there. There's a whole lot of other things that happen, but that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that you would be like his son. And Paul got it. And he said, that's God's ultimate goal. That's my main pursuit. And that became the passion of Paul's life. That's what he's talking about in this text. He says, I was provoked because of what God did for me. And I'm provoked for why he did it. 
He did it that I might be like his son. And theologically, he is. Positionally, he's like Christ. They're in union together. And now Paul says, that's what I want to be positionally. I want my life to be so much like Christ. Listen, dear loved ones. Listen to me. You want peace. You want joy. You want purpose. You want fulfillment. That's where it's at. That's what it's about. That's the Christian life. That's God's goal for every single believer. Black, white, Chinese, Korean, East Coast, West Coast. It makes no difference. This is what it's about right here. Pursuing him. That's why God pursues us in his grace. And that's why we're to pursue Christ in our life. And when those two things collide right there. When your passion and God's purpose become one. You want to know what happens? The life of the Apostle Paul. You say, how could he do that? There's the answer. God's purpose became his passion. And they collided. And when they collided, boom, his life. And he upset the world. One man. That's what he means in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. My time is up. But I want to encourage you this morning to take these truths Meditate on them and evaluate your life. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, what were you pursuing? Paul showed us clearly what he was pursuing. He showed us why he pursued it, he showed us how he pursued it, and he showed us what he thought about his pursuit. Now I ask you today to go home and meditate on these truths. Evaluate your life as we stand at the doorway of another year. What do you think about your pursuit? Are you there? Almost there? How are you pursuing? Better yet, answer this one question and you'll deal with all the rest. Why are you pursuing? If you're pursuing Christ for any other reason, any other reason than than because Christ saved you and because Christ saved you for a purpose, you're in trouble. If you're pursuing Him because you think that's how you're going to be saved, go back and read the text. That's not what Paul said. Ask those questions questions of yourself today I pray let us pray oh father I thank you for your word so clearly gives us what we need father I pray your spirit now would take your word move upon our hearts convict us encourage us change us lord where we need it it's in Jesus name I pray amen